0: Hallelujah. On your way out this morning, uh, just two quick reminders. I just want to remind you again if you have not yet picked up a, a lifeline, do that on the way out. Uh, if you've already picked it up, please uh, do me the honor of not reading it until after the service. But when you get home, man, this is going to be good lunchtime reading for you. I've already had a chance to peruse about two thirds of it and uh, wonderful articles once again. Um, out of the series that we uh, did this last fall about putting God in his place and uh, this month it's on putting God in his place in our occupation and um, you will really really enjoy uh, the articles that you find there from lots of different perspectives. Um, I was uh, speaking earlier uh, this morning to Michael Murphy just tell, he's got the front page article there it's just wonderful wonderfully written. Uh, once you get it, when you look over to page 16, you'll see a beautiful young woman there and her husband. That would be my daughter, Eleanor. She's got an article there. Um, and in between and all through, lots and lots of great, great um, things there for you to uh, be nourished in. Also, on your way out, men, um, I just want to add to, to Ludovic's uh, invitation. Um, right now on that list, there are two names. That would be mine and Noah's. All right, so... I expect multiple other names to find their way onto that list. We're going to have a great time. It's close. It's only at Camp Friendship in Annandale. Uh, Dr. Lindy Dungy, uh, as you know, is uh, Tony Dungy's brother. Um, and uh, there is – it's just going to be a, a fabulous time. It always is a highlight. And yes, I know you can wait to the very last minute to sign up, but why not do it ahead? So. Note to self, wives, elbow to husbands, ribs on the way out, pick, write your name down, get them, or write their name down for them if they have a problem with their signature today, you take it upon yourself to help them. All right, good. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, please use the Bible located right in front of you in the uh, chair rack. Turn to page 720. Mark is the second book in the New Testament, the second Gospel after Matthew. Mark, Luke, and John, second in order in the Scripture, but first, actually, in terms of the, um, the writing and dating of of the scripture, Mark was the first. We've talked a bit about who Mark is. John Mark, a young man, he he shows up in various places in the scripture, including in this portion of his gospel. He's the young man who was uh, temporarily captured by the temple guards. But when they grabbed him, they grabbed hold of his cloak, and uh, he let it go and ran from the garden naked. That was our boy John Mark. John Mark shows up again in the epistles, uh, at one time traveling with uh, Paul and Barnabas, but then later uh, kind of leaving them in the midst of a missionary journey, which uh, Paul did not find very helpful, and uh, in fact caused a separation between um, Mark and uh, Paul, I mean between uh, Barnabas and and Paul, uh, and yet that was healed later, uh, as we have in the letters that Mark says, uh, you know, send to me, John Mark. Uh, for he's helpful to me and there's a so it's it's a th- there was a healing that must have took place and a reconciliation that took place at, at some point in the process uh, Mark was also a in, in addition to um, being sort of a, a, a co-labor with Paul and Barnabas um, and being there uh, witnessing eyewitnessing to the events uh, that happened in Jesus's life he was also um, a collaborator with the Apostle Peter and in fact um, much of the Gospel of Mark reflects um, some of the, uh, the understandings that Peter, the Apostle Peter, brings and uh, can find their way into the Gospel of Mark. So, so this comes from very um, good heritage here. Uh, there's a lot uh, that, we're, that uh, we're discovering as we go through this Gospel together. One other note uh, that I've made a couple of times but I want to make once again this morning is this. When we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, when we're coming into the text, we're not simply interacting with a history textbook. We're not simply uh, talking about something that really is, you know, "Ah, that was written a couple thousand years ago. How on earth could it possibly be relevant to me today? What impact could this have upon my life? No. When we come to the Gospel, We are actually, it says in the scriptures, that the gospel embodied in the gospel is the very power and presence of the living God. And so when we come to the gospel and when we interact with the gospel, we're not simply interacting with dry, dusty text. We are interacting with the living God himself who comes to us, who has made the world by his word, who sustains the world by his word, and who transforms the world by his word and transforms our lives. By His Word. So I'm expecting and anticipating nothing less this morning than His Word to transform our lives individually and corporately. And I hope that's your expectation this morning as well. And if it hasn't been your expectation, I invite you to step into that place of expectation today because Jesus wants to meet with you today to transform your life through His Word. All right? You're up for that? I'm up for that. It sounds good to me. All right. Mark chapter 14. When we ended last week, we ended in Mark chapter 14, verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so they had just finished the Last Supper, and they are about to now head out to the Mount of Olives, and more on that in a moment. Verse 27, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And all the others said the same. Now, I'm not even going to pause here because in two weeks, our very own Pastor Dave Ogren is going to be back with us, and he is actually going to be speaking on this passage and then the related passage at the end of Mark 14, where Peter, in fact, does the very thing that Jesus says is going to happen. And so, I'm going to leave that for a moment there, only to notice just to have you notice that here's the conversation that's going on as they are making their way to the Mount of Olives. Now, let me just tell you just a little bit about the Mount of Olives. It's located very close to Jerusalem. And there it was lifted up to um, a height of 2,700 feet. And in fact, the um, Mount of Olives is one of the highest places surrounding Jerusalem. In fact, it's 200 feet higher than Mount Zion. And from it, from the peak of of the Mount of Olives, you have a magnificent view of the city of Jerusalem, as well as a magnificent view of the temple. Located near the mount of olives at the foot of the mount of olives were a number of different gardens and orchards that were there that were owned because one of the interesting things was there could and and I didn't know this until I was doing some research and and that is that there were no gardens that were allowed in within the city of Jerusalem itself because There was, there was, the the, the thought was that you wouldn't want to put down anything like manure on the holy soil of Jerusalem. So there couldn't even be gardens or orchards in the city itself. But just outside of the city, Um, wealthy people would have, you know, uh, here we have, you know, there's a community garden right up here by the ad So there would be different gardens, but these gardens, unlike the community gardens, would be privately owned by wealthy folks who who had those gardens both for their own personal purposes as well as perhaps for business purposes. And one of those gardens is known as the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane. Now, extra sermon points available for anybody who can tell me this morning, what is the Garden of Gethsemane? What does the the Garden of Gethsemane mean? What What is the meaning of that word, Gethsemane? Oh my, it was an opportunity. Nobody's getting the extra points today. All right, oh well. Squeeze, okay, we're right, good. Press. Actually, the press of oil. It's the press of oil. Here's, and, and, and likely within the Garden of Gethsemane, there was actually an olive press where the olives were taken and the oil from the olives were taken out or the olives were taken and they were harvested and then using the olive press, through the pressing of the olives, the oil would come out. That's why when we use anointing oil, and by the way, we have some lovely new receptacles. Aren't these pretty? These are so nice. They're not quite as pretty as the old purple and pinks we have, but we have these. And and in here is anointing oil that is made out of pure olive oil. And that's that's because of, we use that kind of oil rather than Crisco, Okay, because we're kind of connecting back into that olive oil in the Garden of Gethsemane. As we come to the passage we're looking at this morning, we're really coming to the very heart of, you know, we're continuing to move with Jesus through the Passion Week. Passion meaning suffering. The Way of the King, this is the title of this sermon series, Passion, The Way of the King, and this morning when we come to the Garden of Gethsemane, in many ways, I think we're actually coming to the very heart and center of Jesus' passion. The reason I say that is because there wouldn't be the cross if there hadn't been Gethsemane. And the real, I, I, I mean, I, I, this is not in any way, of course, to downplay the, the, the battle that took place when Jesus was crucified, but I want you to understand that the battle really was won here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want you to notice something interesting, and I'll, if I remember, I'll come back and circle back to it at the end of the message, but in case I don't, I'll mention it now. I think there's a, you know, and the Scripture's full of these kinds of of um, interplay between things throughout you just you can watch scripture throughout the scripture and the story of scripture unfold and if you are thinking and 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 attentive even as we're going through saturate you're watching it's it's been incredible it's been wonderful to just saturate ourselves in the word of God because you start making connections that you maybe wouldn't have made if you weren't reading and and watching the flow of the story and of the words unfold before your eyes. But I want you to notice that sin came into the world through the lives of a man and woman who were in a garden. And the submission that led back to reconciliation with the Father and life again also took place in a garden. And so now let's step into our Scripture for this morning, which is verses 32 to 42 of Mark chapter 14. The title of this message is Passionate Surrender. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to His disciples, sit here while I pray. And He took Peter, James, and John along with Him, and He began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, He said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to say to him. And returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look! The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise! Let's go. Here." Becomes my betrayer. And this morning, I want to take our attention and focus it very directly and specifically on. I, I, I've already said that I believe that this passage is sort of the center point, and we're getting to the very heart of passion and the way of the king. And I want to bring you now and get your focus even more tightly upon the center of the center. And the center of the center is found in verse 36. And it's found here in what I call the prayer of relinquishment. This is the heart of passionate surrender. This This is where the battle took place in Jesus' soul. This is where the victory was won, which ultimately resulted in His cross, His death, His burial, and resurrection, which brought to us the victory. But here's where the victory began. Here's where the battle was fought. Here's where the battle was won. And what was true for Jesus is also going to be true for you and I. This is what one one author that I've read over the years calls... The ultimate battle. Here's where the ultimate battle lies. It lies in the prayer of relinquishment. Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet... Not what I will, but what you will. You might want to highlight this passage in your Bible if you've got a highlighter. Put a mark next to it somewhere, maybe not in the pew Bible, but in yours. This is the center of the center, folks. Here, here's here's where the rubber hits the road. Here's where transformation actually begins. In fact, you can't go around this, you can't go under this, you can't go over this. The only thing that you and I can do is go through this. And this is the pathway into transformation. This prayer of relinquishment. So let's take a look at it and unpack it for us this morning. I'm I'm going to take the next moments to do that. The first issue here is that of sonship. Jesus says, Abba, Father. Jesus introduced a whole new terminology. A terminology that was not, this was not customary in Jewish prayer. God was not viewed, I mean, He may have been viewed at a distance as Father, but it was at a distance. And when Jesus used, in fact, this was one of the things that His critics used against Him when He called God Father, they were all over that. It was one of the things that they used. Against Him. Who do you think you are? Jesus says basically, well, I know who I am. I'm the son of Papa, Father. So I want you to notice that the prayer here this morning begins in a place of intimacy. In a place of relationship. I've said it before countless times. Let me say it again this morning. Christianity is not primarily a religion. It isn't a religion. It's not one of the world's great religions. As if it were somehow equated to or alike to other world religions. Christianity is a relationship. It's a real, genuine relationship with a real, living God. And it's a relationship that is to be marked by that of intimacy. Now, what does that intimacy, what, what, what does that intimacy connotate? What, what's, what happens because of that in- intimacy? What, what does that mean to you and I? For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Here is the incredible thing now that we see happening in uh, through the writings of Paul, which we've read recently in our Saturate. And I hope you, you know, again, as you're making those connections, we just read in Mark and Jesus saying, Abba Father. And now here it's showing up in Romans, Paul's saying, by him, we cry, Abba Father. We have received the spirit of sonship. We are no longer orphans. Andrew has preached on this more than once, powerfully. One of the, the, um, great wounds. Within the church and within the world is this orphan spirit that creates this sense that that I have no place and I don't know who I am. But one of the things that the Spirit of God living in us, when we have received that Spirit, we're no longer a slave to fear. We've received that spirit of sonship, and by Him, we cry, Abba, Father. Because Jesus opened that door to us. This is incredible! So what does that mean? Well, that means, first of all, that we have access. Just this week, those of you that have been reading in Saturate came across this familiar Scripture that you've Heard and read many times, but let's put it in context this morning in our understanding of this prayer of relinquishment and intimacy with the Father and the, and the fact that we can experience sonship. Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We have access. A long time ago, I read a story about a little boy whose father was a Brinks uh, armored car driver. And uh, his, his dad happened to drive up to school one day where his son was going to school. And everybody, you know, I mean, when you're an eleven year old kid. You know. Like my son just turned eleven on Thursday, by the way. Another birthday this week, all right. And you're an eleven year old boy, and there's nothing an armored car. Woo. You know? So all the little boys are gathering around and they're, you know, and, and uh this guy, you know, gets out of the the cab and he's got his his whole uniform on and he's packing heat and he's Looking, you know. And little yeah, looking serious and, and little Bobby comes running up and jumps into Daddy's arms. And everybody's like, Who oh. But that's my daddy. That's my daddy. We have access. With guidance. Because He's Abba, Father. But when the Spirit of Truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears. He will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Because we have Abba, Father, because of the Spirit of Sonship, we have the Spirit of the living God living in us. What could possibly be better, we often ask ourselves, than the disciples who walked alongside of Jesus and listened to Him and heard Him and saw Him and were with Him. What could be better than that? The only thing that I can think of that would be better and that Jesus thought was better was not simply having Him there physically, but having the Spirit of God living within us, guiding us, leading us, directing our paths. Teaching us, counseling us, bringing us into all truth. Third, it brings us a sense of security. We're just talking about the armored car driver. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here is the reality of The fact when we cry out, Abba, Father, and when the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are sons of God, that we are daughters of God, that we are children of God, when we have that confidence, we have that sense of security that there's nothing that is going to be able to separate us from Him. And I've mentioned this before and I'll mention this again. I love what it says. It starts with neither death nor life. We think of death as the great separation, but sometimes it feels like life is the thing that separates us. Just the dailyness of life. But nothing (laughs) will separate us. And we have an inheritance, Galatians 4, which we just read recently again in Saturate. Because you are sons of God, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you an heir. Did you catch that? Not only are we not to walk in or operate in or or live in a spirit of orphanship, neither that, but we are also no longer slaves. And the two go together in the Spirit. But we're free. As sons and we're heirs with Christ. His glory. Oh, it's so here's my question for you this morning. Ask yourself this. Would you please ask yourself this question? Do I know God as Abba Father? Do you know this God that I'm talking to? Do you know him in the way that I'm speaking of this morning? Or is he something that's sort of, he's distant, he's conceptual, he's um, threatening, he's, he's something out there, but you know, yes, I, I believe that there is a God, but I'm really not sure that I even want to get close to him. I don't know. Do you know him as a Father? Papa? Because that really lays the foundation for relinquishment. How can you relinquish? How can you, how can you surrender to someone you don't even know? or don't really understand the character of, or question the character of, or or be fearful of the character of, when you know Him as He is, that as Jesus did, this is what was the foundation and key point of His ability to walk through the rest of this prayer of relinquishment was because He knew God is Papa, Abba, Father. Because He knew that. Because He had that relationship. comes to the issue now of sovereignty. Again, back to our text in Mark chapter 14. Keep it there before you. Verse 36. Actually in 35, going a little further, He fell to the ground, prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from Him. Abba Father said, everything is possible for you. If possible, dot, 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 everything is possible for you. So I can ask if possible, because I know that it's possible, because I know who you are. And I know that you are the sovereign God, maker of heaven and earth, who created the world by your word, who sustains the world by your word. I know that all things are possible with you. As the angel spoke to Mary at Jesus' conception, said, for nothing is impossible with God. As Jesus speaking with the disciples after their conversation with the his conversation with the rich young ruler the disciples were amazed at his words but Jesus said again children how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other who then can be saved Jesus looked at them and said with man this is impossible but not with God all things are possible with God Grace makes all things possible With works, not so possible. We can't make and manipulate and change things to happen, but God's grace can change things in us. By His grace. Through His grace. We've already referenced a couple of passages in Romans 8. I don't have time this morning to pull all of those together for you, but we're going to reference another one right now. From Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, for who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. In all things, God works. He's the ultimate recoverer. He's the ultimate recycler. In all things, God is at work for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. So all of us who are in relationship with Him, and and, and lidovic said something very powerful this morning about the blessing of God. What was the exact phrase you used? I want to say it just as you said, if you remember how you said it. We can't avoid, you know, you can't stop the blessing of God. And his arm is the same length. That's words around this very concept of the sovereignty of God. That he is in control. We're not. And that he is at work. And look at what his work is what is his purpose? His purpose is that those God foreknew He predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. It comes back and ties back in that His desire and purpose in our lives is to transform us into the likeness of His precious Son, Jesus. And as he predestined, He called, called, justified, justified, glorified. So here's a very significant question that each of us need to ask ourselves over and over again, do I trust His sovereign will in my life? Here we're starting to get to the heart. Now we're we're moving a bit deeper even in this prayer of relinquishment. Do I trust His sovereign will in my life? Do I actually trust Him? There's one thing I've learned over all of my years of following after God and through all my years of ministry and and, and right now again, right now in this season, God is pressing me again about this issue of trust. Do I trust Him? Do I really trust His sovereign will in my life? There's no flip easy answer to that one, is there? Alright, sonship, sovereignty, sacrifice. Take this cup from me. Come back to our text for a moment. Verse 34, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. We have no idea. You, we, I don't know that we can even comprehend. The depth of the weight of what Jesus was bearing here and what He knew was coming. It was spoken of prophetically in the book of Isaiah, chapter 51, verse 17. Awake, wake! Rise up, O Jerusalem! You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of His wrath, You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Literally, encased in the Greek here in the the original languages is this sense of this cup that it is understood to be the cup of staggering. Sacrifice causes us to stagger. Jesus is staggering. Staggering. He's like a, a a fighter, a boxer in the ring. He's taking punches, one after the other in His spirit, in His soul, and soon physically. And there's a staggering, it's staggering his His very being. Here's the incredible power of the Incarnation. Here's the reality of the truth of Jesus coming to earth. As a man, as he's going through this, understand he's not going through it in a detached, disinterested, disconnected way. He's experiencing the fullness of this pain of sacrifice deep in his spirit. What is in that cup? What is in that cup? In that cup are the wages of sin. Now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In that cup were the wages of our sin. The death we deserved are in that cup. In that cup is the very judgment of God. But now He has appeared once for all at the end of ages to do away with sin. Here we are back in Hebrews again. Just read it this week. Do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and He will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. He was sacrificed to take away sin and within that cup is the judgment of God. In that cup is the wrath of God. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Since now we have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved by God, from God's wrath through Him? Recognize the cup he has drunk. If you go back just a few, you know that there's a conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples. Mark 10. Verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let us let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus says, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Mark 10, verse 38 there. We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, well, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. What is Jesus saying? He's saying they're not going to be able to drink the exact cup that He drinks. They... We do not drink because He drank this cup with the wages of sin and the judgment of God and the wrath of God. We do not have to drink that cup. However, we do have the opportunity to drink the cup of sacrifice, of giving ourselves to Him, even as we have said this morning and sung so many times, as an offering to Him. That is our sacrifice before the Lord. Do I recognize the cup He has drunk for me? We need to be in touch. And this is why this Lenten series taking us up to Good Friday and Easter is so significant that we saturate our souls in the very sacrifice that He has made for you and for me. We're going deeper yet. We've gone from sonship, the sovereignty of God, to the sacrifice of Christ, and now we come to surrender. Yet, not what I will. If possible, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me, please. Yet, not. I want to take just a moment to make surrender very practical. Jesus is our example, our perfect example of surrender. What did he have to surrender? What did he surrender? He relinquished position. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself emptied himself and came in the form of a man. He willingly relinquished his position. Not only that, but he relinquished his plans. Over and over again. He speaks to this. For I have come down from heaven not to do but my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. Over and over He says, I do this for the Father. I relinquish my plans to receive His. Relinquishing people. John 17, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. This morning, we've dedicated little Cassandra, Claudia and Marlene, in doing that, are relinquishing this beautiful, precious daughter. She's not theirs. She's his. They're stewards of her for a season, but they're his. He relinquished his very own person. The reason my father loves me, John 10, is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, authority to take it up again, this command I received from my Father. Jesus is not the helpless victim of events that are beyond His control. He has deliberately come and is coming and walking resolutely towards that cross. Laying down His person. His very life. Who are we to think that we would be required of anything less or else than that? So my question to you this morning is who, what, and where am I being called to surrender? Is God inviting you to open up your hands and relinquish somebody who is precious in your life? Is he inviting you to open up your hands and relinquish something that is precious to you? Some plans, some dreams, some some idea, um, a position, a, a plan that you have? Is he inviting you to open up your hands to relinquish people in your very own being? And now we put the exclamation point. And we really get to the heart of 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 the the issue today. We started with sonship and intimacy with the Father, Papa, Father. And then we pressed on into the sovereignty of God, if possible, well everything is possible, Then we moved into the sacrifice, take this cup from me, which led us into that place of surrender and relinquishing the position and the plans and the people and the very person of ourselves, which brings us to the very core, which is submission, but what you will. Here's where God wants to bring us. But what you will, not my will, but your will be done. What you will, Lord, your will be done. Again, in Hebrews, which we again just read this week, Hebrews 5, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the One who could save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverent submission. Although He was a son, He learned obedience from what He suffered and once made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. Because Jesus was willing... To submit himself fully to the Father, He became the doorway for you and I to experience salvation, sanctification, glorification, all the things that are a part and parcel of being a child of God. But it's because of what Jesus did. Because He was willing to listen and do what the Father said for Him to do. Yet, but not my will, but you, what you Here's the place that Paul speaks of. In Galatians chapter 2.20, this is, this is his encapsulation of this submission. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Isn't this interesting? I mean, somebody has noted. I mean, this is, in some ways, the most self-full Scripture in all the scripture. I mean, eight times he uses the personal pronoun. I, me, I, 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 me, me, I. But he says, all of that, all of my I-ness, all of the thing that's a part of what, what has made me, I have been crucified. All of that has been laid down in order that I might live by faith. And what does that mean? It means living by faith in the Son of God. Now it's switched and it's no longer I, but it's Christ in me. As he says in another place, Christ in me, the hope of glory. So here is the ultimate battle question for your and my life. Am I willing to die to live? We can't be like the cartoon I read years and years and years ago. A Bible study, they were talking about this very concept And they're sitting around the table and this woman is giving her, and she says, well, I can't really say that I've ever really died to myself, but I did feel faint once. Feeling faint once is not going to do it. You can't go above, you can't go below, you can't go around. You must go. Prayer of relinquishment. And when you have, you will come to the place, and in in verse 41, and I don't know what your translations say, in the the NIV it simply says in verse 41, it's when Jesus comes back to them and, and, and to the third time, and he says, Are you sleeping? Still sleeping and resting, and then he says this word, Enough. Enough. But you know what? The word actually. Literal translation of that word means, it may, the, the literal translation is, it is settled. That's what it means. It's settled. And the loneliness and the isolation of that moment in the garden, even when, you know, the other eleven were there somewhere in the outer skirts and he brought the three in closer, but really ultimately it was Jesus in the midst, in the throes of the crucible, of surrender. And he came out on the other side and said, it is settled. Enough. It's done. And then he says, rise. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let's go. Here comes my betrayer. There's no sense now of Run away. Mm-mm. It's settled. He went through the crucible and he came out refined as by fire, fully ready for what was to come, and resolutely he walks towards those Judas and those who are with him to come to betray him. It's settled. Is it settled in your heart? Is it settled in your life today? Is it settled? My experience is, it's settled and it's still settling. I am saved and I am being saved. I'm in this incredible process as you are and all of us of the, I mean, on the one hand, it is settled because of what Jesus did on the cross, and it's His grace, and He's done it. It's finished. It's settled. And I'm still learning to walk into the fullness of that through my trust in Him. That's just honest. So this morning, uh, worship team, come on up, if you would. And as you do, we're going to sing one of my very favorite hymns, and one of the hymns that always convicts me very deeply. And it starts with the very first word in the hymn All to Jesus I surrender.